The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Howdy. Howdy. It's not much of a meal for grown boys. That ain't much of a meal for anybody, but that's my business, ain't it? Well, no offense intended, Mr. Harris. Carl Harris. This is my wife and my boys. Hello. Howdy. Howdy. You know, Mr. Harris, you could be feeding those boys beef. Yeah. If I had wings, I could fly, too. <laughs> Mr. Harris, we're the Cartwrights from the Ponderosa. Now, there's plenty of beef in the valley. Uh, I reckon so. All I can do to fork over $10 a pound for that skinny antelope. I couldn't afford beef. You paid $10 a pound? And lucky to get it. A man come through last week selling salt pork for $15 a pound. At least this meat is fresh. We aren't starving, mister. We take care of ourselves. Well, I'm sure you do, ma'am. You don't have to pay those prices. Well, we market our steers over to Placerville for $25 a head. We'd be making money selling them to you for 20 Twenty dollars? That's right. Are you joking me, mister? They're yours if you want them. All you have to do is come over to the Ponderosa and drive them away. Woo! <laughs> I couldn't do much better than that back home in Kentucky. <laughs> <laughs> Kentucky, you're a long way from home. I got tired of seeing my family starve on 40 acres of rock. Now, I figured if we had to starve, we might as well do it somewhere where there's a chance of striking it rich. Well, nobody's going to starve, but we have cattle to sell. Now, get yourself some men together and come over to the Ponderosa. Well, by golly, we'll do it! <laughs> Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, May the 9th, 2019. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Last week, we focused on all of the shortcomings of socialism, from its fundamental collectivist philosophy to its reprehensible history in practice. Today, we'll begin with a summary of last week's take on socialism and then move on to the other side of the political coin, to capitalism, a term that in and of itself begs being challenged, so we will challenge that later in the show. And all of this will begin right after we encourage you to write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Subscribe to Just Right on iTunes and follow us on SoundCloud. Hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave. Visit us at www.justrightmedia.org, where you can access all of Just Right social media links, our archived broadcasts, and of course, where we encourage you to offer your financial support, and in so doing, become part of our effort to enlighten others about the true nature of freedom and capitalism. As we pointed out last week, the growing appeal of socialism, particularly among the young, is both alarming and exceedingly dangerous. The experience of socialism as manifested in countries outside the Western nations is generally alien to most Westerners, given their more capitalistic histories. The horror stories of mass starvation and genocide historically perpetrated in the name of socialism are rarely attributed to the nature of socialism itself, 
but to something otherwise dysfunctional within the particular culture in which those horror stories take place. The failed attempts at implementing socialism just weren't done properly, argue the socialists, of course. To distance themselves from the unavoidable and systemic evils of socialism, modern socialists have created the anti-concepts of quote-unquote social democrat and quote-unquote social democracy, both euphemisms for socialism and for socialists. The appeal of socialism is driven largely by an anti-capitalistic mentality, and a hallmark of this mentality is to morally equate productive individuals with criminals. The capitalistic earning of one's wealth is thus equated with greed and with theft, while the socialistic expropriation and actual theft of the earned wealth of others is justified on the grounds of altruism and of social equity. Most importantly, and this is something we stressed last week, it has to be understood that socialism is not and never has been about alleviating the conditions of poverty or about helping the poor, as is so widely believed. Socialism is all about egalitarianism, about an equality of economic outcome, and egalitarianism always ends up as an economic race to the bottom. The more socialist a country, the poorer, and yes, the more equal its citizens. You know, they become equally oppressed politically as they are in poverty. So until both socialism and capitalism are understood in a way that's just right, socialism will continue to be idealized, much to the detriment of all. Now, we got some reaction to last week's show. <laughs> we got this one from Victoria R., who wrote, You can vote your way into socialism, but you have to shoot your way out. <laughs> I love that. You know, that's a logical extension of our one person, one vote, one time version of social democracy. <laughs> Linda H. writes, Social democracy versus socialism. Know the difference. Well, yeah, democracy, you know, needs no adjectives. I mean, what's the implication here? What does that term mean? Why do we need that adjective? Is, is that to tell us that an individualistic democracy is not possible? And if democracy is to be regarded as mere voting, as the socialist left always does, then social democracy if I was to interpret those words with, you know, some sort of reality of definition, would be a democracy in which only groups could vote, as, say, opposed to an individualist democracy in which individuals could vote. Then we got this from Ted Harlson, who's been a guest on our show a couple of times, and he wrote, quote, I find there is an evasion afoot whenever socialism is mentioned. Ah, uh, it's not that, not now. X is not socialism. Progressive, but not socialism. We're more sophisticated. Those are old ideas, and we've moved beyond them, he says. Betty says, I also think capitalism needs flesh rather than beating back skepticism, end quote. Well, Ted, when I saw that, I totally agreed with you, and that's exactly what we're going to try to do today. But to make the case you're asking for, I don't think we can really rely on the kinds of arguments we might have made with regard to socialism. Capitalism isn't even the proper term to use in contrasting its essentials with socialism. And as a result, the use of this term capitalism requires a lot of distinctions and clarifications to be made that might otherwise be unnecessary. 
And that's why those defending capitalism are always beating back skepticism, as you, as you refer to it, rather than putting some kind of flesh onto capitalism to which they can relate. I mean, when most people think about capitalism, they're really thinking about capitalists and business people and market activity in general, you know, buying, selling, trading, exchanging, and rarely exhibit any conscious recognition that these activities exist to some degree or other under every political and socioeconomic system. Communist, capitalist, socialist, mixed economies, monarchy, you name it. The Russians, during their revolution that we heard about last week, revolted against their capitalists. Although Russia was then, as it is today, just about the farthest thing from being a capitalist country that you can imagine. But they still did have landlords and bankers, so they had capitalists. One of those otherwise unnecessary complications in telling the capitalism story is that capitalists, the people, are an entirely different economic concept from capitalism, the system, the socioeconomic system that has been cursed with that name. And this is going to have to be among the first distinctions that has to be made clear. So in order to keep ourselves focused on capitalism without merely beating back the skepticism about capitalism, as Ted lamented, and without merely focusing on the shortcomings of socialism and all of its collectivist variants, I thought a slightly different approach might be in order. So let's pause at this point for a few moments to consider what I shall call the good, the bad, and the ugly perceptions about capitalism and about capitalists. And these perceptions are generally viewed by observing capitalism's most visible practitioners, the people, who are in some way interacting in an economic marketplace. So what better way to do this than by telling a story, a parable if you will, one that you already began hearing in our show opener today. Our show opener today came from the incredibly popular in its day television series Bonanza, whose stories were set in the late 1800s in Virginia City, Nevada, a city made famous because it was the center that arose as a consequence of the thousands of people who traveled there in the hopes of finding their fortunes by mining for gold or silver. That part is real history and serves as the backdrop to the fictional story. The miners were drawn to an area known as the Comstock Mines, about which we'll have a bit more to say when we return from the continuation and conclusion of the story begun in our opener. Our scene begins as Haas and little Joe Cartwright arrive in Virginia City to discover a marketplace frenzy taking place in the center of town. Hey, look at that little Joe. me ten dollars a pound yeah looks like we're raising our own kind of stock don't we? come on they must be out of their minds how so friend always like to hear the other fellow's side of things ten dollars a pound for antelope meat that makes sense to you it depends on your point of view you see that happens to be my antelope meat thereby coyotes might argue with you about that I haven't seen you boys around. Are you staking out in Virginia City? Mark Burdett's the name. Joe Cartwright. It's my brother, Hoss. Yeah, pleased to meet you. Say, he's a big fellow, isn't he? Boys, do you have any idea how many people are heading toward Virginia City right now? Thousands. Yes, sir, thousands. And every blessed one of them with a belly he's got to fill. Gonna be a bunch of them, huh? Yeah, ever since they found out about that blue stuff being silver, which assays at better than $3,500 a ton, they're heading here from all over the world. Silver? All that time Comstock and those other fellows were checking it away, thinking only about gold. Gold? 
Virginia City is going to be a hundred times the strike the mother load ever was. Now, let me tell you something, boys. There's more than one way to strike it rich. Man can live without whiskey and women and clothing, even shelter. But if he doesn't eat, he dies. Hey, little Joe. What are you doing here? Well, I'd like you to meet Mark Rattet. He owns this place. I'm proud to meet you, Mr. Cartwright. It's my brother, Adam. Adam? You've got a good thing here, haven't you? It takes a businessman to know a good business, Mr. Cartwright. Is that what you call it? I could think of another name. <laughs> you boys sound as if you want to talk. Well, one thing you'll find out about me, I'm always ready to oblige. This way, gentlemen. Here we are. It's not very much, but it's a beginning. What I say is, let them have their silver as long as I can sell them their meat. You're charging pretty fancy prices for that meat. Well, it's the only meat in town, Mr. Cartwright. It cost me a lot to get it. Liable to cost you a lot more. Mister, you went out and butchered the meat supply of the whole Paiute nation. You're risking an Indian war. Oh, come now, friend. I have nothing against the Indians. What I always say is fair game is fair game. I'll tell you what I'll do, Mr. Cartwright. I'll take all you've got. You can name your own price. If you charge $10 a pound for antelope meat, what will you be charging for beef? All I can get. If you think that's out of line, take a look in the saloon. See what rot gut whiskey's going for. Or a bag of flour. Or a pick and shovel. I just saw the last sight of antelope, Mr. Burdett. We're out of business. Not yet, Thorne. These gentlemen are the Cartwrights from the Ponderosa Ranch. Prime beef cattle as much as you want. My assistant, Early Thorne. How are you, gents? Well, do we do business? Why not, Pa? We're in the business to sell cattle. Mr. Burdett, we have our own way of doing business on the Ponderosa. We pay an honest day's wages for an honest day's work. We expect the same in return, nothing more, nothing less. Now, let's be honest, friends. I need your cattle. I'm willing to pay you the best price you'll ever get. I have a cold storage tunnel out there full of ice from the Sierras. It's the only ice in town. If you're going to sell in Virginia City, you'll have to sell to me anyhow. I say, let's get together. We'll both clean up. We ain't hurting for customers, Mr. Burnett. Any miner in town can come up to the Ponderosa and buy all the meat he needs. And we don't intend to profit from his hunger. Profit from their hunger? You think I was twisting those fellows' arms to get them in here? Every minute they can spare, they use to dig for silver. I'm doing them a service. My son is right. The Ponderosa is a business. But there's more involved here than profits. I'm sorry, Mr. Burdett. No deal. Why not? Oh! Hi there, Mr. Cartwright. What do you think of Virginia City? Sure is growing up, ain't you? Surely is, Mr. Harris. Now, this place is busier than a nest of hornets. Cattle, you get some people together and come on over first thing in the morning, we'll fix you up. By golly, I'll do that first thing in the morning, and I want to thank you all. That's a real neighborly thing to do. You heard what they're fixing to do? Sure. The Cartwrights are going to sell beef direct to the miners. That'll wreck us, Burdett. They could, if those cattle reach Virginia City. Well, you stop them? Well, let's just say I don't look with favor upon any unnecessary competition. Well, we could have got a lot more than $20 a head for those cattle. We made a fair profit. That's all the Ponderosa asks. Well, yeah, what about the other ranchers? I spoke to the other settlers. They won't boost up their prices. What are you owing more money for anyhow, little Joe? You ain't going no place. <laughs> seen you before just got in town a few days ago well let's celebrate go what's your name Burdett Mark Burdett to glory of the Comstock load to the Comstock load 
They say it'll be the biggest and richest strike in history. A bonanza. A real bonanza. And I'm going to get my share of it. You're not exactly dressed for the part. Hmm? Oh, you don't think I mean to dig for it like those fellows over there. <laughs> There's more than one way of panning for silver. Yeah, I know. Well, I didn't mean it that way. Why are you here? The excitement of a new camp. I don't know. Maybe the hope that this one will be it. Anyway, there's nothing left in California. This is going to be the biggest thing that ever happened. Make California look sick. I can feel it. And this time, I mean to get my share of it. How come you never made it in California? Smart man like you. Uh, maybe I wasn't smart enough. Come to think of it, I could ask you the same question, couldn't I? <laughs> Don't. To the future. When we both have what we want. Do you care to drink to it? As long as you're buying the drinks, Mr. Bidette, I'll drink to anything. We're going to be rich. The richest man in town. He's wishing you luck. Did you have to kill that way? Them cattle didn't get to Virginia City, did they? All right, they didn't, but you could have stopped short of murder. You know any other way, Mr. Burdett? The Cartwrights would have come around out of up the price until they had no choice. Someday you're going to learn it takes more than money to make a real killing. Thorne, you're a monster. I never should have taken up with you again. You need me, Burdett. What we just heard was, I think, an excellent fictional story account representing many of the moral and economic arguments we must encounter daily in the real-world marketplace of goods, services, and commodities. So let's take a closer look at some of the things we heard in this parable, shall we? We began by learning that thousands of people are heading towards Virginia City and need to eat. As described by the character Mark Burdett, the vendor of the $15 per pound antelope meat, and he makes an economically valid point that the marketplace is rapidly expanding, demand is exceeding supply, and prices have risen accordingly. The economic demand for food is what is called in economics inelastic, every entrepreneur's dream, a relatively cornered market, at least from his point of view. Then we learn, of course, that to get this meat that he sold, he has slaughtered the food supply of the native population, the Paiute Nation. And in response to that charge, he says, well, I've got nothing against the Indians, but what's fair game is fair game. And again, on its face, that almost sounds like a fair statement, reflecting a competitive spirit of some sort, doesn't it? But was it really fair game? Given what we heard about how he got his game, I would argue no. But either way, this is one of those situations that reflects the tragedy of the commons. That's a term given to the circumstance that arises when there's no clear definitive sign of property ownership or responsibility attached to a given area or activity. After all, to the extent that something is called public land or is regarded as such, everyone and anyone who's a member of the public is theoretically entitled to occupy such lands, unless some kind of authority has been established in a way to regulate and enforce the use of these lands in a more responsible way. The Ponderosa is a business, and there's more involved than profits, said Ben Cartwright. And he's basically right. You have to consider the future. You have to think long range, not just for a short range expediency of making a fast buck to the point where you can't even make a slow buck anymore. 
but thanks to proper business management, the cattle raised on the Ponderosa are able to feed the area's population for a price that they can afford. And that's why Adam could say, any miner can come out to the Ponderosa and get all the meat they can buy. But I love this answer. What will you charge for beef? asks Ben Cartwright, <laughs> to which Burdett says, all I can get. And here again on its face, and all other factors being on the up and up, that's a completely appropriate response. It's called charging what the market will bear. And that's one of those economic principles that can drive certain leftists crazy, especially those who believe in the labor theory of value, a theory that is utterly disconnected from the principles of value. Now, the closest thing I recall our own area markets being faced with this kind of surge in demand on a product is what happens during extended electrical and power blackouts. We hear stories about how, say, gas stations jack up their prices to incredible heights and then get accused of price gouging and immoral activity when they're guilty of neither. They are, in fact, acting quite responsibly to ensure that their supplies last as long as possible to serve the greatest number of those in need. They might raise the price to discourage casual buyers in a time of need, and they might also restrict quantities sold to one customer at a time, and they've done this. And, and to get labeled greedy and selfish and all that for doing what is responsible is to me just a tragedy and a shame. Then this was funny. <laughs> when Burdett's assistant comes in, he says, well, the antelope meat is all sold. We're done. We're out of business. <laughs> well, I'm sitting there going, wow, this is telling. In fact, given their short-range thinking with regard to their business model, I would suggest that despite the outrageous prices they charge for their antelope meat, it still wasn't enough, <laughs> not the way they were running that business, because it wasn't enough to sustain them. I love this. In response to the charge that Burdett was, quote, profiting from their hunger, and he responded, do you think I'm pushing them in here to buy their meat? No, they want to spend their time mining. I was doing them a service, he says. And here again, that economic argument is perfectly valid. In fact, it, there's a lot more going on here than just that. There's the whole division of labor and where a person puts his most effective time to create the most income for that person. And that made a lot of sense. But then, of course, we start seeing the dark side of Mr. Burdett when he says, well, let's just say I don't look with favor on any other unnecessary competition. Now, of course, by unnecessary competition, he means competition on a free market, a market which he intends to monopolize. <laughs> and his ironic sidekick says, sometimes it takes more than money to make a real killing. Well, I tell you, these guys are morally no different from any crony politician who uses the guns of government to restrict and prohibit economic competition. You know, I was thinking in retrospect that the handicap that Mr. Burdett was facing in the given Virginia City history of his time was that there were no politicians to corrupt. I mean, they would have done his dirty market restrictions for him, as we, we see still being done today. From taxicab monopolies to milk marketing boards, government-sponsored and endorsed restrictions on market competition, you know, they're all truly criminal in their base nature and their basic ideology and exist outside of what we would call a capitalistic environment. That's not capitalism. But again, as always, capitalism and capitalists get tarred with this anti-competitive brush. Suddenly we discover yet another adjective incorrectly attached to a noun, crony capitalism. And that is a contradiction in terms. Capitalism means a free competitive marketplace 
Crony means a controlled monopoly or variant thereof. These are not the same, folks. One of these things is not like the other. They are opposites. Crony socialism would be a more accurate term, but you know, I thought about that too, and, and I was guilty of my own sin of putting an unnecessary adjective in front of the word because the term's kind of redundant, isn't it? No adjective is necessary. Socialism already entails restricted and controlled markets, and crony adds very little to that condition. So what is all this to say about capitalism? What have we learned from this story? Well, I would say mainly that the character of Mark Burdett was no businessman and no capitalist in the capitalism sense of the word. He's a thief and a murderer. He did not raise or produce the meat he was selling, nor did he have the legitimate clear title to it. The fair game he referred to was not really fair game, complications produced by the tragedy of the commons aside. And then, of course, criminality aside, let's just put that aside for a moment, the economic arguments we heard throughout that whole story were generally valid as economic observations. This is why I hate arguing issues like this strictly from economics. And that's from both sides of the competitive table. Both the Cartwrights and Burdett were operating in a free capitalistic environment, outside the criminality, as I say, despite their very differing philosophies of how to run their businesses. Now, finally, on a point of history, and this is real history about the era that these stories took place on Bonanza. And I checked this out in my Universal World Reference Encyclopedia, which was published in 1950. And they had this to say about Virginia City. A city in Nevada, 14 miles north-northeast of Carson City. It's built on the east slope of Mount Davidson at an elevation of 6,500 feet above sea level. The city owed its growth to the famous Comstock mines, from which over $90 million in gold and silver had been taken. The city had many ore smelting and refining plants built at a cost ranging from $350,000 to a million dollars each. Virginia City was settled in 1859. The population, which in 1876 was 11,000, decreased when the main load was exhausted. And get this, in 1950, when this was published, the population was 603. As of the 2010 census, the population of Virginia City was about 855. <laughs> now, we learned last week, capitalism is seen as monopoly. And with crony business people like Burdett, both in fiction and in real life, it's understandable to see how this perception comes about. So up next, a more modern-day demonstration of these principles. This is from John Stossel. I'm upset. Progressives, let's call them regressives, smear entrepreneurs, and the regressives are winning the battle for hearts and minds. Thousands of Amazon employees are forced to rely on food stamps, Medicaid, and public housing. Bernie complains, and the media jump to agree. Richest guy in the world and he's got employees on food stamps. The left-wing media, of course, and the right, too. A huge number of Amazon workers are so poorly paid, they qualify for federal welfare benefits. At first, Bezos fought back. Amazon calling the claims, quote, inaccurate, misleading. At that point, I was cheering Bezos for standing up for capitalism. It's not companies' fault that some workers qualify for handouts. More people would collect them if Amazon were not hiring. By creating jobs, Bezos gives workers better choices. But the media don't report that. 
they make working for Amazon look like oppression. It's described as a cutthroat corporate jungle where workers are pitted against one another. 80-hour work weeks are the norm. So Amazon caved. Amazon is raising the minimum wage for all of its workers. The anchors smile, but the raise comes with a cost. Yes, the higher minimum is good for these workers who have jobs now. But beginners, people like Kelsey Holder, will be shut out. For being only 13, I think I was making a good amount of money. So, minimum wage is fine. If you work hard, you can make more. It's just, you have to prove yourself. Now she's the restaurant's manager. She would have never had this opportunity had the higher minimum wage existed when she was hired because teenagers aren't worth the risk. We quit uh, hiring people without experience. Minimum wage jobs are an entry-level job to get someone some experience to do something. You raise that high enough, you cut those people out of the market completely. Then people stay unemployed. But progressives claim a higher minimum lifts everyone. At least Amazon is just one company. Entry-level workers can find jobs elsewhere. But then I learned Jeff Bezos' company also uh, plans to lobby Washington to hike the federal uh, minimum wage. Now Amazon will try to get government to force its competition to pay what Amazon pays. That's why I'm upset. Jeff Bezos, this entrepreneur I admired, turns out to be just another craven opportunist. Bezos knows a higher minimum wage will hurt his competitors more than it hurts him. Clever. Use government to handcuff your rivals and then pat yourself on the back and pander to people who promise free stuff. Yes, there are gross parts to capitalism. Greed, gaudy excess, and great inequality. But when self-interested business owners are left free to make their own decisions about whom they hire and what they pay, more people benefit especially poor people. I shouldn't be surprised that Bezos uses government to get special favors. He's done that before. A bill authorizing billions of dollars in tax incentives. Amazon didn't just announce a second headquarters. It started a competition to see which politicians would squeeze their taxpayers most. Stonecrest, Georgia, wants Amazon to build its second headquarters there so badly that the city council voted that if chosen, they will de-annex a portion of the city and rename it Amazon. Give me a break. Politicians shouldn't pander to companies, and companies shouldn't pander to politicians. Some of the worst enemies of capitalism are capitalists. Congratulations, good luck. You're going to need it. Everyone, please turn your attention to our game board as Nancy tells us our first topics. Okay, they are. After I made a killing on the Dow Jones, I was no longer Singapore. The most inventive army officer was General George Patton. You don't know how a picket sign works? Allow me to demonstrate. You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. So let's return to Ted's request that we try to put some flesh on the capitalist side of the socialism versus capitalism debate, rather than constantly work at beating back skepticism. Gave this a lot of thought, Ted, and you know what? I don't think that's possible. If I'm forced to continue using Karl Marx's politicized term, capitalism. Quite frankly, that word sucks. (laughs) Sorry. 
the battle to beat the skepticism about capitalism is lost the minute we resort to the use of that word. And I say this, knowing full well that I myself will continue to use it. I'm kind of forced to do that, aren't I? And I, and I can't deny that the word capitalism does, in fact, have very useful and valid applications when being used to describe contrasts in economic structures and in economic mechanisms. But as a social descriptor, well, it's terrible. What we need is an epistemological correction in how we advance the cause of capitalism, not an endless economic defense of capitalism's consistently demonstrated superiority. We can argue and explain all about the advantages of capitalism over socialism all we want. It's been done since the discovery of capitalism. But the problem is that by using the word capitalism, we generally confine ourselves to making economic arguments. And then you get into all of the inconsistencies and confusions that we reviewed in the first half of our show today, to say nothing of the personalities that are involved in the whole process. So to discover a more effective and adequate way to beat this skepticism that you refer to regarding capitalism, join me in the following experiment. Try this out. Put the words socialism and capitalism side by side. Now, forget about economics for a minute. Put any economic considerations out of your mind. Throw them in the garbage. You're not thinking about economics. Now look at the words again. Do you see the problem? No, not yet? Well, then try this. Remove the suffix ism from each word. Now what are you left with? Two words, social and capital. Now ask yourself this. Just what the hell does social have to do with capital? <laughs> These two concepts are not even close to being in the same category of thought or definitions to say nothing of the psychological implications of using them in conjunction with each other. Can you see why social will win over capital almost all the time? The process of production has nothing to do with anything social. The process of production has to do with two key elements, capital and labor. Not capital and social. <laughs> That's a non sequitur. Similarly, being social has nothing to do with economic capital. Another non sequitur. The proper contrasting word to social is individual. Therefore, the proper framework in which to discuss any of these themes or topics is like this. Not socialism versus capitalism, but socialism versus individualism to properly delineate the social boundaries of the discussion. Again, not socialism versus capitalism, but laborism versus capitalism to properly delineate the economic boundaries of the concepts. And both of those words, by the way, are clunky. Capitalism has always been clunky. Might as well have a clunky word like laborism <laughs> because they match. And again, not socialism versus capitalism to define the political boundaries of the debate, but tyranny and freedom. With the use of those terms, and juxtaposed as I just have, now you've put some flesh on the capitalist side of the argument and completely eliminated the need to fight back any skepticism, as I will demonstrate by simply using a dictionary in the closing quarter of our show today. Now, of course, I don't expect everybody to suddenly become language revolutionaries overnight, but do bear in mind 
that being language revolutionaries is exactly how the left has become effective in its war against the right. I mean, language is the way that the human mind is programmed. Every word we use predetermines the way we think about things. But I realize that in many ways we're kind of stuck with that word capitalism being used in three different contexts, economic, social, and political, and I know that I myself will not be able to abandon its use entirely, especially when confronting or addressing those whom I don't have time to persuade on these grounds. So before I continue with presenting my reorganized and restructured epistemological approach to waging this war, let's first hear from two of capitalism's finest defenders making their arguments as only they could. From what might have been called her own podcast, were there such a thing back in December 1960? On this side of the bumper, we hear Ayn Rand herself on capitalism and freedom, while on the other side of the bumper, a much-needed perspective on social justice and capitalists by Dinesh D'Souza, as recorded in front of a campus crowd on March 3rd of this year. And then I'll follow up and close with the continuation of the proposal I just made and why I still think that the use of the word capitalism in the context it is being used actually weakens the pro-capitalist argument and strengthens the socialist case. The candidates of both parties stress the fact with which everybody seems to agree that the world is facing a deadly conflict and that we must fight to save civilization. But what is the nature of that conflict? The truth which both candidates refuse to face and to admit is that the world conflict of today is the last stage of the struggle between capitalism and socialism, and that the whole world knows it. The most helplessly ignorant shopkeeper on any corner of any street on earth knows it in his own simple terms, though he is unable to discuss political theory. Any illiterate peasant knows it in any Russian-occupied country when he dies fighting in desperate bewilderment for his right to his scraggly patch of soil. Every American voter knew it in this past election, but the political leaders of both parties were the only ones who pretended not to see and who went through the shabby ritual of promising mankind free speech, free factories, free medicine and free lunches all to come from the American treasury as if the masses of mankind were, in fact, the looting parasites of the socialist's fancy. We stand for freedom, said both candidates, and proceeded to declare what kind of controls, regulations, coercions, taxes, and sacrifices they would impose, what arbitrary powers they would demand, what social gains they would hand out to various groups without specifying from what other groups these gains would be expropriated. Neither party cared to admit that government control of a country's economy, any kind or degree of such control by any group for any purpose whatsoever, rests on the basic principle of socialism, the principle that man's life belongs to the state. A mixed economy is merely a semi-socialized economy, which means a semi-enslaved society, which means a country torn by irreconcilable contradictions in the process of gradual disintegration. Freedom, in a political context, means freedom from government coercion. It does not mean freedom from the landlord or freedom from the employer or freedom from the laws of nature which do not provide men with automatic prosperity. 
It means freedom from the coercive power of the state and nothing else. The world conflict of today is the conflict of the individual against the state, the same conflict that has been fought throughout mankind's history. The names change, but the essence and the results remain the same, whether you call it the individual against feudalism or against absolute monarchy or against communism or fascism or Nazism or socialism or the welfare state. If one upholds freedom, one must uphold men's individual rights. If one upholds man's individual rights, one must uphold his right to his own life, to his own liberty, to the pursuit of his own happiness, which means one must uphold a political system that guarantees and protects these rights, which means the political-economic system of capitalism. I left the city of Domes to find a place where murder wasn't an official ceremony, where the right to live and the right to die didn't belong to the state, but to each one of us. I left it to find sanctuary where those rights exist. Let me now pivot to a deeper topic I want to address in a little more depth, social justice. What is the social justice argument all about? In the 20th century, the century when I was in college, the debate was between capitalism and socialism. And that debate was really about which system was more efficient in creating wealth. And that argument was actually settled. Capitalism won. And many people thought, that's it. Socialism is done. But although capitalism won the economic debate, it never won the moral debate. And the moral debate is not about which system creates wealth. The moral debate is over how that wealth is distributed. And so I want to take the bull by the horns and ask, on what basis can we decide that the allocations of capitalism are just? Let's take an actual example of what I mean. Now imagine a guy who is a valet parking cars at the Ritz-Carlton here in Palo Alto. And this guy is paid, let's say, $15 an hour. And let's say that he works 10 hours a day, so he makes 150 bucks. And this guy is now thinking to myself, in those 10 hours, how many cars did I park? Well, I parked, let's say, 100 cars. And how much does the Ritz-Carlton charge for someone to park their car? $30. So how much should the Ritz-Carlton make as a result of me parking those 100 cars? $3,000. And how much was I paid out of that $3,000? $150. 3,000 minus 150 gives $2,850. Who gets that? So from the valet's point of view, this is a very unjust system because I'm doing the work and some other guy is taking the cash. And this argument about the injustice of capitalism is actually anchored in, I think, uh, a rather interesting argument that was made by Marx himself. Marx basically said that when you have a business, an enterprise, there are two groups of people that are involved in making this enterprise go. There's capital, the capitalist, and there's labor. So the capitalist provides what? Capital. And capital, Marx says, has a cost, and that's called interest. 
So part of the cost of the business is to pay interest on the capital. And then Marx says there are other costs. There's rent, there's equipment, there's machinery, there's this, there's insurance, there's this, there's that. Add up all the costs, including the cost of paying labor, and you get total cost. That's the total cost of running a business. And Marx says, now you might expect that the product would be sold for that. But in fact, the capitalist will sell the product for the highest that the market will bear, as much as he can sell it for. And so there's a big difference between the revenue generated by the sales and the cost. And that difference Marx calls surplus value. We call it profit. And Marx's question, uh, quite a profound question, who gets that? Now Marx's assumption is that that belongs 100% to labor. Why? Because labor made the goods. The capitalists supplied nothing more than the money, which has already been recompensed through interest. My view is that this description, convincing as it is on first glance, is a completely false representation of how businesses actually run. Consider for a moment the capitalist. In America today, the vast majority of capitalists supply a lot of things, but the one thing they do not supply is capital. Did Steve Jobs actually put up all the capital for Apple? No, he went to a bank. The bank supplied the capital. And this is true of Gates and all, everyone down the list. The bottom line of it, the capitalist supplies three things that Marx completely ignores, that are actually of far greater value than capital, and actually entitle the capitalist to a share of the profit. But Marx, in a sense, submerges these three factors completely. First, the capitalist has the idea for the business. Without the idea, there's no business. Labor doesn't think of the idea, the capitalist does. It's his or her idea, they do it. Second, the capitalist organizes the business. Here you have this valet, he goes, I parked the cars, I need all the money. The truth of it is the reason you're getting $30 to park a car is you're at the Ritz-Carlton. Somebody built the Ritz-Carlton, somebody thought of it, somebody paid all the capital costs, somebody took out the insurance. You didn't think of that. If you come to my house and want to park my car, I'll pay you 50 cents. So the reason that you're getting $30 is not because of you. It's not your labor that's worth $30. It's the resort that's worth $30. And you didn't create that. So the capitalist has the idea for it. He organizes it. And third, he takes all the risk. Very important factor. The capitalist gets paid at the end. If the business has a bad quarter, Steve Jobs can't go, or the current Tim Cook can't go to Apple and say, sorry, guys. I'm not going to pay you for six months. It's looking bad for us this half of the year. No, he has to pay them anyway. So labor is trading a fixed wage for security. But the entrepreneur is taking the risk that he might get nothing out of it, and he could even lose money. So the truth of the matter is that in fairly assessing the just rewards of capitalism, you have to match what the entrepreneur actually contributes. And to say it's just capital, it seems to me, is a gross misunderstanding how business is actually conducted in the United States and all around the world. Dinesh D'Souza correctly argues that what is missing in the socialism-capitalism debate is the moral dimension. But even so, he has continued to confine his argument to an economic one, hasn't he? And you won't find a better economic argument made anywhere. 
notice that he began his argument by addressing the idea of social justice, once again demonstrating the power of that word social, which we'll look at shortly. Similarly, Ayn Rand, as we heard earlier, has also made a moral argument for capitalism and has correctly and philosophically contrasted the individual against the state, the individual against feudalism, absolute monarchy, communism, fascism, Nazism, socialism, and the welfare state. <laughs> Having identified that the principle of socialism means that man's life belongs to the state, Rand concluded that, quote, we must uphold individual rights, which means capitalism, end quote. Now, what I want to know is, why does it mean capitalism? While I agree that capitalism would be the economic condition that arises from upholding individual rights, that's a consequence, isn't it? It's not a, it's not a broad descriptor of such a society. Wouldn't a system that upholds individual rights better be referred to as a society of individualism? That way, we end up with a proper alignment of concepts. Socialism versus individualism. And again, capital should not be juxtaposed against socialism, but against labor. Those are the two fundamental constituents of production. So let's take these words apart and see what we end up with. And you'll find that we essentially end up with five constituents comprising the four concepts. The four words, of course, capital, labor, social, and individual. And the fifth constituent is the word ism itself. Now, to remain consistent, I got all my definitions from a raggedy copy of a Funk and Wag Wagnall's dictionary I have on my shelf. And let's just go through some of those definitions and then we'll see how they can be used to manipulate the way we think. The word ism, as a noun, it means a distinctive theory, doctrine, or system, and is usually used disparagingly. But the word ism as a suffix of nouns has a number of meanings. Number one, the act, process, or result of, as in ostracism. Number two, the condition of being, as in skepticism. Number three, the characteristic action or behavior of, as in heroism. Number four, the beliefs, teachings, or system of, as in Calvinism. Number five, devotion to, adherence to the teachings of, as in nationalism. Number six, a characteristic or peculiarity of, said especially of a language or idiom, as in Americanism. And number seven, which is a medical use of the term, an abnormal condition resulting from an excess of, as in alcoholism. Uh, that word isn't kind of opens up a whole new world of language manipulation and abuse, doesn't it? Now we get to the root words themselves. Capitalism. Again, this is all from the same dictionary. Number one, an economic system in which the means of production and distribution are mostly privately owned and operated for private profit. Number two, the possession of private capital and its resulting power. A capitalist is defined as one, an owner of capital, especially one who has large means employed in productive enterprise, and two, loosely, a person of wealth. Three, a supporter of capitalism. Now, of course, the word of all words, socialism. Number one, 
public collective ownership or control of the basic means of production, distribution, and exchange, with the avowed aim of operating for use rather than for profit, and of assuring to each member of society an equitable share of goods, services, etc. And number two, the doctrines of those advocating this system. Now, I have to say that this is a misleading definition from its outset, consistent with the false concept of socialism as the dictionary attempts to describe it, because it starts off with public collective ownership. There's no such thing. No, 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 never. It's a metaphysical impossibility. Unless you want to return to the tragedy of the commons, we've been there before. An honest and accurate definition would have begun with the words, government or state ownership or control, not public. I think that a more accurate word to describe a means of production that is run by the workers would be laborism. But as we'll see shortly, that word has even worse psychological associations than the word capitalism. The word social. Now this is important. One, of or pertaining to society or its organization. Two, disposed to hold friendly intercourse with others. Sociable, also promoting friendly intercourse, a social club. Three, constituted to live in society, social beings. Four, of or pertaining to public welfare, social insurance. Five, of pertaining to or characteristic of persons considered aristocratic, fashionable, etc., a social register. Now, all of these definitions, psychologically, are really feel-good words. Nothing challenging or threatening about them at all. Individual. Definition of individual. Number one, existing as a unit, single. Two, separate, as distinguished from others of the same kind. Three, pertaining to or meant for a single person, animal, or kind. Four, differentiated from others by distinctive characteristics. Individualism is defined as, one, personal independence in action and thought, etc. Number two, the state of being an individual. Three, self-interest and egoism. And four, the social theory that emphasizes the importance of the individual. Now, here's an interesting word, and perhaps might be why we don't hear the term laborism. Labor. Definitions. Number one, physical or manual work done for hire and economic production. Number two, arduous physical or mental exertion, toil. Number three, the working class collectively, especially as organized into labor unions. Number four, a piece of work or a task. Number five, medical application, the pain and stress of childbirth. Number six, to progress with great effort or painful exertion. Number seven, to suffer the pangs of childbirth. Number eight, to be oppressed or hampered. Number nine, to work out laboriously, overworked, to labor and argument. Now, can you just feel all of the negativity surrounding that word labor? It's a psychological disaster zone. It's all about suffering and stress and pain. No wonder the left uses the word socialism instead of laborism, even though the latter term would be a more accurate descriptor and completely jives with how the left operates. We'll come back to that shortly. Then there's the word capital. The total amount of money or property owned or used by an individual or corporation. Wealth in any form employed in or available for the production of more wealth. And in accounting, the net worth of a business after the deduction of all liabilities. And finally, possessors of wealth as a class.
Now, in this case, contrasted against the word labor, capital suddenly sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Who wouldn't prefer wealth and all that stuff as opposed to all that suffering and stress? Again, all this is very psychological. Now, consider what happens psychologically whenever we juxtapose socialism against capitalism. Here's what the average human mind is processing. On the socialism side of that equation, we associate feelings of friendly intercourse with others, sociable, public welfare, etc. While on the capitalism side of the equation, we associate intellectual concepts of property owned or used by an individual or corporation, wealth employed for the production of more wealth, the net worth of a business after the deduction of liabilities. <laughs> no comparison. Psychologically and socially speaking, capitalism doesn't stand a chance. How is net worth and property ever going to be able to compete with friendly and social? But contrast social with individual, where the individual is associated with values, like personal independence in action and thought. Well, now you've got a fighting chance, don't you? Especially when you pull the whole picture into context by recognizing that individualism is a social system. It's a social concept. I've mentioned that many times before. Socialism is not a social system in the sense of being social. Socialism is about some people having unearned and unjust power and control over others. Not very social to my way of thinking. Moreover, I would say that you can't be social unless you are an individual. Members of groups are not social. As non-individuals, what is the identity of anyone who's completely subservient to the collective? You can't even have social intercourse if you are a unit secondary to the group. Now that's why I've always argued that socialism is as anti-social as any ism can get. Now I can't really say at this point where all of this kind of realignment of definitions may lead me in the future. But you'll know when I know, especially if you join us again next week when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Tonight, Mod Mod World looks at money. I didn't know that. Yes. Now, all over the world, there's all different kinds of money. For instance, the French use francs. It always hasn't been that way, of course. Many years ago, right in this country, the Indians used to trade with beans. Hmm. What do you think of that? Hey, why don't we get some French Indians together for dinner and have some francs and beans? <laughs> this is really a little more serious subject than that. Don't you care anything about money? It's oh, easy come, easy go. I spend every nickel I get. What? Oh, is that wrong? What? Is that wrong? You're going to have to think about the future. Oh. You know, you're not in any kind of a retirement plan. No. You're going to have to take care of it yourself. Who's going to look after you when you're an old man? Who's going to nurse you when you're sick and take care of you when you're cold? Who's going to worry about you when you're old and gray? Lyndon Baines Johnson. That's <laughs> what I mean, and you know. I mean, you got to save something up for your old age. Put it away. I got all I need, and I got it in a safe place. Well, you got savings bonds? You got it in a bank? No, yeah, I got it in my mattress. Your mattress? Yeah. You're saving money in a mattress? Yeah, I got $17,000 in my mattress. No kidding. Hey, well, I imagine you sleep a little better at night knowing you have all that money there, huh? Well, not really. It's all in coins. <laughs> you know, 
you, you may have stumbled into a fortune. You may not realize it. You know, if it's all in coins, you may have a lot more than $17,000. Huh? Read a book on numismatism. Oh, I know all about that. My aunt had it. She couldn't lay, lift her arm up. No, 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 that's rheumatism. I'm talking about saving old coins. Some of them may be very valuable. I happen oh. to have a very valuable penny. Is it real old? Oh, 1491. The country wasn't even discovered till 1492. That's what makes it so valuable. 